1: We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with our latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 smart beds. They automatically adjust on each side. To keep you sleeping comfortably all night, discover the difference at sleepnumber.com. thrive Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a special episode of the Thrive Global podcast, recorded live in the flagship Sleep Number Store in the heart of New York City. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my dear friend, the media legend, Katie Couric, for a wide-ranging discussion about her amazing career and her latest move into entrepreneurship. And, of course, about how she lives and how she thrives. Later in the show, we will be joined by Slip Number President and CEO Shelley Ibach, an amazing executive and friend, for a heartfelt discussion about how she continued to stay on top of her game in the middle of a personally challenging year. Katie, thank you so much for doing this. You know, Katie and I have been friends for a very, very long time, and our lives have intersected in so many ways, including uh, when our daughters were in college together and we were there at uh, lots of parent events. And uh, most recently, when um, John and Katie were dating, I first met John in Aspen, and he enlisted my support in helping get uh, Katie's phone out of their bedroom. <laughs> we're not doing well, but we're not giving up. <laughs> I even gave them um, an alarm clock that they can use instead so that she doesn't have the excuse that she needs her phone to wake up. I will come up with other ideas. You may have to withhold sex until she puts (laughs) her phone.
2: (laughs) There's a joke in there somewhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Katie, let's start with your new venture because it's so exciting, Katie Kurik Media.
2: Yeah, how original, right?
1: <laughs> no, it's great. I think women should put their name up front. I have no problem with that. Remember, it was the Huffington Post, but I,
0: <laughs> that's true. But
1: <laughs> you don't have to apologize to me, but <laughs> but I I love the goal and what you're doing. But tell us in your own words. Sure.
2: Well, first of all, hi everyone. It's great to be here, Ariana. Always great to be with you. Um, you know, I. I've been thinking a lot about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think it's partially because I love communicating with people. I like telling stories. I like having, I like interacting with people. I like engaging with an audience and I like distilling and synthesizing complicated stories to help us all understand them better. So having done so much, so many different jobs in television, Uh, there weren't a lot of jobs that I hadn't done. And also seeing the landscape of the, you know, the terra firma of the media landscape shift before my eyes, I started thinking, how could I continue to have a voice? And how could I continue doing what I love? And I realized quickly, as I think, Ariana, you've seen all along, is that people are getting their information in a whole host of ways. A lot of people are not watching television. Uh, It's usually an older audience. I think the average age for an afternoon show on MSNBC is 64. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I saw that young people were, you know, cutting the cord and getting important news information and storytelling in a whole variety of different ways. So, knowing that people were disintermediating and speaking directly to an audience, I thought, well, how could I parlay the fact that I'm pretty trusted, Uh, I have name recognition, which is increasingly difficult to achieve in a fractured media environment, and I have relationships with people. Um, How could I parlay that into a business? So, John and I, and John's been an enormously helpful, decided that we were going to start our own thing. And uh, I've never really been that entrepreneurial, but I've always wanted to be. And I thought I want to be more flexible and uh, be able to do things with and not have the the restrictions of a giant bureaucracy. When I went to Yahoo, I tried to do create a digital some you know high quality digital content. But it was very difficult in that environment because they were first and foremost a tech company, not a media company. And they were also concerned about a lot of other things, uh, like selling the company. So um, I decided that I would try to create uh, a space where I would have a direct relationship with an audience through my social media channels primarily, because 70% of people now get their news and information from social media. And try to create a daily diet and a touchstone for people who follow me about the important news stories and also through video and through uh, a daily publication, which we're in the process of of actually putting together now. And additionally, you know, I also saw that brands – wanted to be associated with high-quality content as the advertising landscape has changed. So I'm working with brands I respect, like Procter & Gamble, uh, a company that's really put a stake in the ground when it comes to gender equality, environmental issues, and even did a short film about the talk about mothers talking to their African-American sons, about driving while black. And they really impressed me with the work they're doing. And there are other companies that I think do want to stand for something. They don't want to just sell soap or shampoo or cars or life insurance or, you know, all kinds of products. I think they want to stand for something. You saw that with Nike and the Colin Kaepernick ads. And I think increasingly... They want to be able to associate themselves with high-quality storytelling. So that's another aspect of the business, and that's how getting there came about. I said to Procter & Gamble, the Me Too, Time's Up movement is super important, but how else can we inspire young women and show them you know, the way and give them some advice on how they might achieve success? So we profiled six women who I admire, who I think achieved a lot of success, Eva Chen, Ina Garten, Issa Rae, Bozema St. John, Bethany Frankel, and Jennifer Fisher, who started a very successful jewelry company. And we sort of talked to them about how they got how they got there. And um, so those are the kinds of projects I'm looking for, uh, things that will inspire people, elevate the conversation, and, and make them think. And we just started this summer, so we're on our way to hiring more people and getting the word out, and launching a lot of different projects, and also being associated with documentaries. And that was such a long answer. I'm so sorry, Ariana. No, I
1: I love it, because everybody knows your amazing history, and I wanted people to know what you're doing now. And I think you're onto something big, because brands really want to be identified with adding value to people's lives, not just selling products. And we just finished a campaign we did with P&G around Pantene um, because there was that Yale study that shows that only one in ten women feel good about their hair. I hope all these women are here now. Are you feeling good about your hair? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we, we found women who had posted on Instagram, hashtag bad day. We put them in a studio We filmed how they feel about their lives when they feel bad about their hair. And then we gave them shower mantras to tell while they're washing their hair that build their inner confidence and connect, you know, how you feel about your hair with how you feel about yourself. Because the two things are very interconnected. It doesn't just go from hair to inner confidence. It also goes from inner confidence to hair. And it was just an amazing campaign on the day we finished the campaign, the hashtag Great Hair Day had more entries than the hashtag Bad Hair Day for the first time ever. So this is like something very new for those of us who've been in the media for so long. It's a very new way for brands to approach selling product while adding value. And for you, it's sort of very natural because storytelling has been such a key part of your amazing career, and so has empathy. You've always been identified uh, with empathy. So how hard is it sometimes to wake up and feel empathetic? Oh, in the current political climate,
2: you mean? I, I try to always kind of be in touch with empathy. Um, I think we're living in very divided, partisan times, clearly. And I think part of the problem is nobody's talking to each other. The media landscape has become so bifurcated and so poisonous in a way. And I think, you know, I I sympathize with a lot of my fellow journalists because I think it's incredibly challenging to cover uh, someone like President Trump who is so unconventional and really pushes the boundaries of... the behavior that we have for so long expected from a president of the United States, it's really, really challenging. And I think people are living in two different Americas depending on what media they consume. And they're getting two very different pictures of what it, what's happening in the world. And I think as a result, people become more deeply entrenched in that particular perspective and less willing and open to even have a conversation with someone who disagrees. And, you know, this has been the case for a few years now. And I think it's even gotten worse and has intensified. And I think there are two very different visions of America that people have. And I, I just hope at some point we can have a conversation and come up with some kind of compromise that people can can be willing to accept. I mean, we can dig in, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, Arianna, about all the factors that are contributing to this division in this country. I read a lot about it. I talk to people about it. And, uh, you know, it's geographic, rural, exurban versus suburban and urban. It's demographic. You know, by 2044, we're going to have a majority-minority population, which is very threatening to some people, even if they don't, Actually, understand their implicit biases, and uh, you know I think income inequality is a big factor too, and class resentment, and so um, you know we have really big, huge problems to deal with this, deal with in this country, and I'm afraid that the media becomes so obsessed over some of the superficial things that are going on you know, behaviors in the White House, sort of musical chairs in terms of staffing. And all these things are interesting and and in a way titillating, but they are distracting. And some might argue that that's the intention uh, of the president to kind of throw all these things out so we don't talk about the real issues. But at some point, you know, we're going to wake up five years from now and these really serious issues that we need the government to take care of or pay attention to are are going to be creating huge problems, even more than they already are.
1: I think, in fact, that uh, if you think of it, we've been talking about these issues for so long, like income inequalities. How many conferences haven't we been to discussing the growing threats of income inequalities? But nothing has really changed. I was at a Bloomberg conference in Singapore last week, and I we talked about that. What? How can we actually move from talking about these things to actually doing something about these things? And And I feel it's connected, believe it or not, with our conversation about how we show up in our lives. Because what is missing is wisdom. People have the knowledge, but they are not wise enough in terms of how we should act. And I think when people are burnt out and running on empty, it's very hard to be wise. You know, you become very transactional and you just have to get through your day and that's why i think the work we are doing around self-care and making sure that you tap into your deepest resources actually affects everything Uh, not just our own health but our own decision making our own courage to speak up and when it comes to speaking up that's a particularly important moment for women You know, you've said that we need to stop using the words prima donna and diva for women because very often it makes women feel bossy. Any of these uh, words, which as uh, Sheryl Sandberg has said in terms of bossy, uh, when it comes to men, um, it would be seen as leadership abilities. When it comes to women, it's seen in negative ways. And, And you've done so much around that. Do you think we're making progress? I do. I mean, I think this Me Too
2: moment and Time's Up, I think we've really had some tremendous uh, revelations about all kinds of things, not just about sexual harassment, but about pay inequality, about how we view each other in the workplace, how we treat each other. I did a documentary series for National Geographic. And one of the hours was on gender inequality. And it was really before Me Too had ever happened. And I wanted to understand why women had not made greater strides in the workplace. And I interviewed a woman named Mazarine Banaji, who's at Harvard, who does this implicit association test. And I think that one of the things that companies should be doing more of instead of just diversity training or sexual harassment training. I think we all need to understand much better our implicit biases. And the fact that we're all products of an enormous amount of cultural conditioning that really starts when we come out of the womb from all the messages that we get from mass media during our formative years. And I think it really does program us to see men and women differently and to see people of different races differently. And we have to kind of, I think before we can tackle those biases, we have to acknowledge them and understand them, that our brain is wired to make these associations. And we start doing it very early on. And I think that is what kind of breeds these chauvinistic attitudes or sexism or racism. All our ability to, you know, our brain's tendency to, to make these associations. And I really think that Mazarine should come to every company and talk about it and how do you break this cycle or how do you kind of ste- step, step back and question your attitudes. I know I try to do that and I'm a pretty open-minded person, but everyone is subjected to these images and messages throughout their lives that make them see something And process it differently. And it's really fascinating and, I think, incredibly important.
1: And I love the way you bring all that into your social media while also making your social media so personal. I particularly love the exchange with your daughters when you posted something that was self-deprecating about yourself. And then immediately after, you posted a text from one of your daughters calling you out on that, yeah, saying,
2: t- telling me not to put myself down.
1: Yes, which is, which is interesting when you
2: learn from your daughters. I think it was Ellie. She made a she made a really good point um, because I think women do tend to put themselves down because they feel uncomfortable with power and accomplishment and even confidence. And I think we are programmed to always kind of not take credit or put the attention on someone else. I really don't do that. You asked my husband, I like attention, but I think that you you know, I I think that women are taught not to brag and to stay away from anything that resembles sort of a self congratulatory remark. And so I think it makes us go the other way and bend over backwards to kind of put ourselves down.
1: Yeah, I actually loved it because it was really pointing out that negative self-talk, I call it the obnoxious roommate living in our heads, is, <laughs> is, is so destructive. But I particularly love it when our daughters are basically feeding back to us what we've taught them. I mean, I, 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 I will get a text from my daughter if I send a text or an email late at night and they don't know it's at different times on the set. Are you getting your eight hour sleep? <laughs> and they're complete evangelists for sleep now, which I love. You know, they, they're they religious about it. So it's just great to see all those lessons uh, being passed on to um, our generation. And we both have two daughters each. And um, it's great to see them coming into their own with all the attendant problems. There's no. Uh, th- there's nothing that's problem-free. So to, uh, wh- a couple more questions about social media. Um, how problematic is it for you or for women in general to deal with the negativity of social media?
2: You know, it's interesting because um, I've, I just block them. That's how I deal with it. I'm kidding. But I do actually block a lot of people on my social media feed. But not so much anymore. I don't know. I've I've really found a great environment in Instagram. Um, I think it's, it's uh, less nasty and snarky than Twitter can be. I also try not to give too many opinions on Twitter because I think journalists have created these echo chambers for themselves where they're really writing for other journalists. And I think it's alienating for readers or consumers or for the public in general. So um, only occasionally do I kind of give my opinion on Twitter. But on Instagram, I'm developing what feels like a real community, um, which is a combination of things I care about, information, information. And one example of that, Ariana, is after the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh and similarly after the shooting in Thousand Oaks. I started posting with uh, my social media producer, Julia, who's here, profiles of the victims. You know, I did a documentary on gun violence a couple of years ago because I've covered so many of these senseless shootings. And I went to Sandy Hook and went into Mark Barden's home the night uh, this happened uh, with his whole family welcoming it me in and they were obviously in a state of shock, but between Columbine and Aurora and all the school shootings that I had covered and, um, you know, obviously in the movie theater, uh, I thought, this just doesn't make sense. But I thought it was so interesting that I got such a response showing just photographs of the victims with small profiles of who they were. And when I've covered tragedies through my career, I've always wanted to know more about the people affected. And I don't know if you remember after 9-11, the New York Times even printed a beautiful, well, it wasn't beautiful, it was harrowing, but important book uh, with all the profiles of the people who had died on nine eleven. And I think it dehumanizes people to just deal with these tragedies through statistics or talking about the perpetrator. And I think people have to realize that a beautiful 18-year-old girl who was a freshman at Pepperdine uh, just happened to be going out for a fun night of line dancing, and she's killed in this club in Thousand Oaks, California. And young I mean, the people were so young. And then you think, of course, of of Sandy Hook. And the response I've gotten from people, they are so grateful because I think with the news cycle moving so fast and furiously, you know, we become inured and desensitized to these incidents of gun violence. And the only way we're going to change is for the citizens of this country to unite and say we can't, this is unacceptable. And you're never going to eradicate it completely. I believe that people have a right to bear arms, but there are common sense measures that can be implemented that will actually reduce the number of people. And, you know, it's just, I think it's terrifying. People share with me how they feel and they talk about these things in my comment section. And I feel like it's provided a, a real place for conversation. And sometimes when people disagree, and then everyone, of course, you know, attacks them, I say, no, I want this to be a safe space for conversation and for p- different points of view. Now, there's some people who are just c- too crazy or too extreme, and I don't think they necessarily have a place in the conversation. But, you know, there has to be more places where people can come together and express their point of view and you know have I think uh, an intelligent dialogue and I have found Instagram to be a place that I really love doing that whether it's talking about the fires and then I have fun things too where I try to talk about my life and fun things I'm doing it's not all serious but it's kind of been it's been a fun place for me to play and to communicate with people and to feel like I'm having an exchange. And now
1: I recently had the chance to sit down with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research for Sleep Number. We spoke about the connection between sleep and kids. So, Pete, what does the research show about the connection between sleep and school performance?
3: You know, there have been a lot of research done over the years. Uh, A great study done in uh, both Israel and the U.S. shows that there's a direct correlation, controlling for everything else, between scholastic performance and sleep quantity. It's a dose response. It seems like every 10 to 15 minutes of extra sleep that our children get results in a better grade. So from the difference between an A and a B and a B and a a C and a C and a D, um, it's really a dose response. So it's, it's amazing how just a little bit of sleep change can make a huge difference in their scholastic ability.
1: Fascinating stuff, right? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear my full interview with Pete has the scoop on the latest sleep science. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number. The bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. And how do you manage to set boundaries? Because um, you, we can all get slightly addicted to social media, to our feeds, to the conversations. How do you decide when to unplug and um, say, this is my time? That's an
2: excellent question. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you should ask my husband about that. But he's kind of gotten into Instagram, too. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm putting this in stories. I'm like, what happened to you, Mulder? <laughs> you know, he used to get so mad at me and, and frustrated. He beat you
1: once. He put something up in stories ahead of you. I noticed that. And yeah. you called him out. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. You know, I think that's a really
2: good question and a really important one for everyone to consider because it is very addictive. I think it's designed to be addictive. I did a whole hour on this for National Geographic as well about whether or not technology was robbing us of our humanity and and, and taking away from human contact and conversations. And, you know, nothing's worse than trying to have a conversation with someone and they're on their phone. Like that person over there. I'm just kidding you. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and in fact, studies have shown that even to have a phone within your vision, you know, if you're at a, a meeting, at a conference room, and it's even in your peripheral vision, that actually takes away from your ability to concentrate. Yeah, of course, America. Simon Senek knows all yeah. about that, and Adam Grant, and there have been so many studies about that. And I do think that, you know, as you know, Ariana, and you've been, been focusing on these issues for a long time, there is no such thing as multitasking. You can really not focus on multiple. And I know that I'm really bad at it because I couldn't, when I was in college, I couldn't listen to music and study at the same time because my brain would be too bifurcated. So... Um, you know, I think I think it's a real issue and I think that John and I need to sit down and, and establish some guidelines and some rules of engagement.
1: Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's do it now. Let's let's see. What are the rules of engagement that you have now? Do you have any rules well, we of engagement? Well we used to.
2: We did have a short period of time where we did not have our phones in the bedroom. And that lasted about a month. And, and was I it did good? I did find it better. I found it I slept better. You know, because in the middle of the night, if I wake up, I check my phone. It's really actually sick. And then, of course, the lights from your phone stimulate your brain. And then it's harder to get back to sleep. And
1: it's not just the lights from your phone. It's the fact that your phone is the carrier of every project, every problem, everything that dominates your waking life. And so suddenly this is intruding into... Your time to recharge, so it's really serious. But here is really the solution we have found that the way to change behavior is through tiny micro steps. Uh, I was talking to um, the CEO of a company we're working with, which is a very fast growing company, and he said to me, You know, I work really hard, the company is doing amazingly, I have this one hope that I'll be able to spend some time with my kids at night without my phone so I said just an hour and a half I want to leave my phone in my car go into my house spend an hour and a half with my kids and then go back to my phone and my laptop and my work I said how is it going he said I haven't been able to do it once I said an hour and a half is too long say you're going to leave your phone in the car for 15 minutes can you do that and so he's been doing it now. So it's like start with something small, you know, who that's manageable. And then you get the reward and that reinforces you wanting to do it. So let's pick a micro step. John, do you have an idea? Oh Mulner is on the podcast now. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> I like a hard cutoff after some hour. So say nine you know, like you can have it in the bedroom until, say, 9 o'clock, and then, and then it, it moves over. So, so not, it's not that it's always off limits, but sort of after some time. Or uh, I, I would go along with that. I would cut that deal with you, uh, Katie. Okay, okay, if, okay well. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you can negotiate the hour. You know, it's okay to make it 11 p.m. It doesn't For me, it's like starting some, somewhere. Yeah. So whatever time you are comfortable... And maybe even saying, we are going to start doing it every Monday, and then you add Tuesday. You know, trust me, we try to make the micro steps really tiny and doable, and then you can keep adding and improving rather than doing something big that you're going to abandon. I, I think
2: I, I could live with 10 o'clock even every night, I think, and and taking the phone outside the bedroom. I and I've
1: given you a little phone bed, haven't I, to charge it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't know where my phone bed is, I, Ariana, I brought, I
1: We be brought honest. another one, right, guys? Yes.
2: It is so interesting, though, because I think the technology has moved so quickly, and sort of your whole world is now in the palm of your hand. I don't know about you all, but when I lose my phone, I panic. I feel like my arm has been cut off. And, you know, I think that our understanding of the impact of this technology on our relationships, on our brains, you know, in part of this series, I interviewed a scientist in California who said all these kids who are looking at their phones at night and the blue light um, and kind of are under the covers and, first of all, you're... Your uh, area, Ariana, it, it's really affecting affecting their sleep. But also, he told me it's creating they're seeing uh, that it's creating some plaque in the brains of some of these young children. And there is some theory and some fear that this plaque is going to build up and it's going to create early onset Alzheimer's and dementia in young people. So these are really really serious things to consider. And I also think, you know, when kids see their parents on the phone all the time, I think it's really sending a signal to their kids that they're distracted, that the parents aren't interested in them. And I think even from an early age, you know, modeling is so critically important when you're developing as a human being. Modeling empathy, modeling facial expressions. And if you're not doing that, or you're not even talking to your child, I see so many mothers now in pushing their kids in strollers. I remember I used to take Ellie to the grocery store and teach her colors from the vegetables. But now I think, if you're not interacting with kids and teaching them language and curiosity and answering their questions and getting them to ask questions, it's going to affect their language development. You know, there was a study, and I always forget the number of words, but children of means versus children of poverty, and the number of words they learn at a very young age, like by the age of four, is some remarkable number. It's like, Millions, Maybe, Julia, you'll look up that study for me if you'll Google it. See, here we go. But, but I wonder if as people start to be more focused on their phones, they're going to stop interacting and, and speaking with their child. And that, those words will start to decrease among children who are lucky enough to have parents who are really you know, invested in their development. So, I mean, there's so many aspects of this that really deserve, and I really admire, Ariana, that you were on this early on and focusing on it. Not just sleep, but quality of life and understanding that technology can be a wonderful thing, but like anything, in excess, it can be incredibly harmful.
1: And uh, we are finding now at Thrive that among all the workshops that we bring into companies, the one that's about managing a relationship with technology has become the most popular because everybody's aware that they need to bring changes into their lives and they are trying to figure out what changes. And it's also so interesting, you know, the feedback loop
2: that you get, you know, it's, it's. I mean, it's so positive and negative. You know, I people DMing me and asking me, you know, they just lost their husband. How can they get through this? Or they've just been diagnosed with colon cancer. Do I know a good doctor in the Bay Area? And some of that, you know, I could spend my whole life responding to direct messages through Instagram. On the other hand, I really appreciate that they're reaching out and I'm forging these connections with people, which is great. On the other hand, you know, often it can become just too much. And there's a lot of anxiety. You know, I feel I have a pretty rich, exciting, I think, wonderful life. But sometimes I feel bad about myself when I see Kendall Jenner in the Victoria's Secrets fashion show. Uh, And I think that's really just a, a small microcosm of what I think a lot of people see when they feel like, oh, my life, compared to all these people it sucks because they're putting out these sanitized manufactured versions of their life and i think it gives people a false sense of like how bad their life is versus how good other people's lives are so you know anxiety has surpassed depression in this country the suicide rate among young girls has tripled i believe between 10 and 14 and you have to imagine that social media is a big factor behind these numbers and furthermore loneliness is an epidemic it's so interesting to me that we're more connected than ever before and yet we're lonelier than ever before and that's why we have to figure out how can we use technology to foster a community instead of just to kind of make people feel anxious and uncertain and bad about
1: themselves so we have one small micro step here that you and John have agreed on and we're all going to be witnesses, right? And let us know how it goes. We'll report and on stories at 9.59 every, mor- yes, every night. you can report <laughs> on stories and I will regram it. And then um, set an example. I really f- have found that people really love to see what everybody else is doing. It gives them ideas, it gives them hope that it's an addiction that we can master. And it also helps, that, helps us wake up and face life with all its challenges and joys in a recharged way. And you've said once, I think it was a Vanity Fair q and um, when they asked you to describe your state of mind as exhausted. So how are you on the scale of exhausted
2: I think I thrive under pressure. You know, I, I'm an adrenaline junkie. If I have 45 minutes to get ready to go somewhere, I'll wait until I have 10 minutes to get ready to go somewhere. Everyone who knows me knows this is true. So I think I thrive like just being really busy and really crazy. I just like pressure. It's super weird. I don't know what my problem is, but um, so I'm not really exhausted. I think I'm kind of. I think I'm kind of confused. I think. Right now, we're living in such anxiety-ridden times. I think there's so much anger and hate and alienation and confusion that I sort of feel out of sorts, I think. But I think, and I think sort of the macro environment colors your micro environment. But, um, you know, I'm also very excited about, I think, as we talked about, Ariana, before we came up. It's such a crazy time, but that makes it so ripe for disruption and for doing things differently and finding ways to do things that were traditionally done one way. Technology, I think, has enabled us to, like for me, to have a relationship with an audience. You know, if I wasn't on television anymore 10 years ago, People probably wouldn't hear from me, although I guess I joined Twitter in 2008, and the vice president of CBS News said, I think it's beneath the anchor of the CBS Evening News to be on the Twitter. And I said, well, it's not the Twitter, and this is a way you can actually communicate. And I remember starting to try to integrate uh, Twitter questions into the CBS Evening News, probably the most kind of traditional, old-school broadcast there is of the three networks. And I think they thought I was crazy. But during the Gulf oil spill, I said, let's take questions through Twitter that the audience might have. And I remember someone said, how much oil is down there? And I realized that's a good question. And that's something our correspondents weren't really dealing with. And so, You know, I've always tried to use technology in a positive way to disrupt in a productive way. Um, And so I'm exhausted but excited that I have an opportunity to really control my own fate and destiny and that I don't have some, you know, network news president saying, hey, we're done with you. We're going to go move on to the flavor of the month. You know, there's something really empowering about that and not being beholden to someone who's using their subjective ideas of what what is good and bad, or maybe taking a news network in a direction you don't feel comfortable in, and being able to control your own destiny and choose the topics that you think deserve attention and consideration.
1: I completely agree. And I think it's also a great role model to younger women about how they can choose their own destiny and choose to take the risk to be more entrepreneurial and um, I want to thank you so much for being such a role model for so many women, from your early success to your pioneering understanding of technology and social media, and now to grappling together with all of us how to set boundaries and how to use them in a productive but healthy way. Thank you so much, Katie, oh, for being thank with you, us. Thank you, Ariana. Thank you. And uh, I'm now delighted to invite to our little makeshift stage Shelly Ibak, the um, CEO of Sleep Number, who is uh, not just an incredibly successful woman CEO, but somebody who has demonstrated to the world how you can actually reinvent a brand to make adding value to people's lives and being purpose-led, at the center of its identity. So, Shelley, it's so great uh, to have you here and to be with you. I've uh, loved our friendship over the last uh, six years and our partnership, first with the Huffington Post and now with Thrive. And I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to our podcast with Katie. And uh, Katie and I will grill you both. (laughs) Um, But I want to start with something which uh, many people may not know, which is that um, you have something in common. You have a tragedy in common, which is that you've both, at different times, uh, uh, Katie, a while ago, you very recently lost your husbands. So um, I would love to talk about that. And starting with you, Shelley, how did you deal with it? And how did you manage to... Bring it into your life at work, into um, your conversations with your colleagues. All those things which are so difficult for anyone navigating loss.
4: Well, first, uh, you know, thank you, and it's a um, pleasure to and an honor to join the two of you in in our conversations ab- about life. And you know, this is a this is a this is a big one. And uh, you know, obviously, you never expect to experience something like this and it's you know literally the worst possible thing that can happen and and then it does and you know we all spend so much time and energy thinking about our future and you know believing that we have sightline to it and the reality is that that we really don't we have the day we're in so um you know one of my you know life lessons through this journey has certainly been that you know, stay present, you know, live your life for the day you are in. Um, I think, you know, for me, what was important to understand, I I just lost my husband a year ago, and um, it was important to understand that grief, the grief journey is about moving forward and finding graces. And when I embraced that idea about moving forward and finding graces, it helped me stay centered. And then, um, my most important, you know, probably the most important thing I've done is embrace um, and you know, really focus on the fundamentals of living, which is sleep. It starts with sleep. I stopped using an alarm clock um, because I knew how important it was for me to recover. And, you know, you need to heal. And healing comes from taking care of yourself. And sleep is at the center of that, along with, you know, later, a few months later, I added exercise and really became disciplined in that area. And that helped me change my lens. So when I felt, you know, those, you know, agonizing moments of despair, you know, going and exercising left me in a place an hour later where... My lens was different, and I was rejuvenated again. And then, you know, adding the healthy eating. So those fundamentals, it's so important to, you know, being able to be present in the day you're in. And, um, you know, finally, you know, I I do start every day with meditation time, and that is really about being grateful. Um, And every day I establish that quiet time to be grateful for everything in my life, and, and to be thoughtful about perspective, and that centers me on, on the day. And then I seek joy, and it's so important, and this is kind of part of, you know, fighting for life. My husband fought so hard to live. He wanted to live so bad, so, you know, for me to help bring meaning um, to, you know, his life, it is about living my own life, and fighting And fighting so hard for for life, I choose life and I seek joy every day and I always find it. So um, those are are some of my my healing lessons um, from this last year of um, my grief journey. And I've been, you know, open with my company and, you know, with all of our team members about that grief journey and, you know, where I've been at. Uh, along the way, and you know how I've progressed you know through through the the four seasons.
1: that's beautiful. and I read the moving piece that you wrote to your company, bringing them into your journey. and um, Katie, you wrote once that your first husband said to you that you were born on a sunny day, mm-hmm. but that uh, changed for you when he was diagnosed with colon cancer and then died from that. Um, how did you deal with it, and, and how also did you bring it into your public life? Well, I admire Shelley so much because
2: we were talking before, and not only was she going through this and feeling like her heart was in a vice every day, 24-7, but she was building this company and working out of, uh, what, is, what was your husband's name? George. Working out of George's hospital room, and uh, which is really quite remarkable. Um, it probably helped you compartmentalize a little yes. bit. And for me, when Jay got sick and he was just 41 when he was diagnosed and Carrie was one and Ellie was five, uh, I think continuing to, to do the Today Show was really sort of like a refuge for me. My work was. But you don't really have a choice in the matter, right? It's not like you can say, I'm not going to deal with this. You just have to deal with it. And I dealt with it the best way I knew how, which was to become a reporter and try to find the best treatments for Jay. I had access to a lot of really smart people at the National Cancer Institute and all kinds of pharmaceutical companies. Um, And so I went into hyperdrive, like, Do something mode. And I think if you're a can do person and you're faced with something like cancer, I think one of the worst feelings is how powerless you are. It doesn't matter if you have access, in some cases, to experts, it doesn't matter if you have disposable income. Or if you're on television, I somehow felt like that would inoculate me from this in a weird way. But cancer is indiscriminate, and it affects one in two men and one in three women will be diagnosed in their lifetime. So for me, I had to keep going for Jay and also for our girls. And then I I wanted to, after he died, and I by the way, I, I'm so... I don't like when people say passed or passed away. I think they should just say died because it's such a euphemism. And I don't know, whenever I see that, I saw that on Apple News that somebody had passed. And I thought, and my brother uses it, so I'm not being like critical, but I just think it's interesting as a society. We have so much trouble with the D word, just saying that someone died. But, um, you know, I tried to take advantage of the platform I had. And I think for me, which w- was most cathartic, I wish I had the discipline to t- do more self-care like Shelly has done. And maybe, Mulner, you and I can work on that uh, in addition to our cell phone addiction. But, you know, I I was able to educate the public about colon cancer screening and have the number of colonoscopies increased by 40%, which translates to a lot of lives saved because I did my colonoscopy on the Today Show and I took Jimmy Kimmel to get a colonoscopy and I'm kind of like the nagging fishwife, always bugging people about getting screened. And then I transferred that passion for education into establishing Stand Up to Cancer. And I'm so proud of what we've been able to accomplish in a decade. We've raised... Over five hundred and fifty million dollars for cancer research, and we're really we've changed the paradigm of how that research is conducted by establishing dream teams from different institutions and company companies to collaborate instead of compete. We've come up with five new FDA-approved drugs, and you know, uh, immunotherapy is obviously a hugely important arena for cancer research right now, and 70% of the money raised goes to immunotherapeutical approaches, and so I feel like I'm making a lot of positive changes, and I think that to counter that powerlessness I felt when Jay was sick, I think I've kind of tried to do things so I could make a difference, if not in Jay's life, but in the lives of other people.
1: And you have done, you've done an amazing amount of work there. And what Shelley said about uh, um, how you use sleep for healing is something so interesting to me because um, a little before uh, George died, um, I had another uh, close girlfriend whose husband died and she could not sleep at all. And it was really interesting to see how if you believe in the healing power of sleep, it actually helps you use it in moments of tragedy, in difficult moments in your life. But you first have to believe that it really matters, that it's not just a nice-to-have. And, and Shelley, you've done so much on this, uh, to actually elevate sleep and and make it clear to people that the science is now unequivocal. Um, That's right. Thousands of scientific sleep centers basically are making it clear that it is not just the foundation of health and the foundation of healing, but the foundation of performance. And um, it's just amazing how much progress has been made in the last few years, but also what a long way we have to go um, to really make sure this uh, new scientific fact is absorbed by everyone. So, how are you planning to achieve that in the next few? Yes, and we have a little announcement to make on that too. But tell me first your thoughts. Well, I am
4: so passionate about this, and you know, sleep deprivation impacts people, you know, physically, mentally, all aspects of their life, both now and in the future. As as you were talking about earlier with Alzheimer's and and other issues that are related to sleep deprivation it also is you know a big culprit in damaging one's relationship you know with you know people in their personal life as well as professional life and you know in the end we all work so hard to be our best self and it starts with having a great quality night's sleep that gives you the best shot at being balanced and being authentic and not overreacting or underreacting for that matter to the various situations you're encountered with. Um, So I truly believe that, you know, the um, world can be a kinder place with greater sleep. And we all know that um, society, especially right now, you know, everybody needs a great night's sleep. And you can see it and hear it um, in social media when people haven't had a great night's sleep. And um, we have to keep, you know, bringing forth studies that... In performances that link sleep to performance, that's one of the reasons why at Sleep Number we did the partnership with the NFL to you know really help the active NFL players um, it be more competitive. And you know you can see the direct link between quality sleep and performance, and it's so fun to see it play out. You know every week in in the games right now,
1: and that's why. Um our motto at Thrive is, a good day begins the night before. That's right. And uh, we are so excited about the conversations we're having with you and your team to launch a dedicated science-based sleep section at Thrive with you as the editor, and to bring together both the latest science, but also new role models, because as Katie knows so well, people learn and change through a combination of data and storytelling. And we have found that nothing has moved the needle as much as having people like Jeff Bezos write that he gets eight hours of sleep and how it, that's good for Amazon shareholders. People who want to hear from others in the arena who are succeeding to make it clear that this is not for people chilling under a mango tree. It's for the NFL players and for the richest men in the world and and for people who are incredibly active and effective in their lives. And I, 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 I really
2: admire both of you so much for changing the conversation. You know, it wasn't that long ago when people bragged about how little sleep they needed. You know, it was a macho thing. I remember when I worked with Brian Gumbel. Um, he would say, Oh, I only get four hours of sleep. And I'd be like, Ooh, wow, that's so great. And, you know, I think, you know, it, the same thing goes for people who use, you know, are, are busy all the time. Busy used to be worn as a badge of honor. And I think the fact that you're really sort of changing the conversation and refocusing the lens on, what our societal expectations are, and what is admirable and what is not, is is really important. And I think that you've done so much with just kind of just just refocusing people and thinking. Gosh, get, needing sleep is not a sign of weakness. It's actually you know good for you and good for the people around you. And so I think it's it's really laudable. So I, I appreciate all your work.
1: I'm trying to get John Bon Jovi to change the <laughs> lyrics of his song, I'll sleep when I'm dead, and to to I'll sleep when I'm tired. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Good <laughs> and luck with
4: that. And it's really fun to get high sleep IQ scores, you know. Yes. So it yes. gives you bragging rights. <laughs> the idea of kind of really
2: quantifying exactly and qualifying your amount of sleep would you know I think that's an, a, an example of marshaling the power of technology and using it to improve your life. Um, and so of course now I'm going to be very competitive with John and we're going to have to compare our sleep scores.
1: <laughs> like we
2: compare our word w- words with friends uh, it, scores a, although I gave fight. up I gave up on that because he beats me all the time so. actually
1: last night Michelle um, and I were at a dinner with Desiree Guber, and she did say that now that she has her sleep number bad she and her husband are competing with each other and she would say, don't don't get into bed yet. I'm not ready. (laughs) Wait for me so that he doesn't get more sleep than she's getting. So that's a very healthy competition. What about
2: having televisions in your bedroom? Uh, Is that something? Because obviously that's a different kind of technology and I'm curious how you all feel about that.
1: Well, the science basically says that it's very important not to watch something just before you go to sleep that you don't know what you're going to watch. Like Handmaid's Tale? No. Very bad. I, anything, any, anything that might disturb you. I mean, certainly not the news, because you never know what you're going to see. And we are all so susceptible. Um, so it's it's individual. But I, I, I have a TV in my bedroom, but I never watch it before I go to sleep. So I like th- an hour before do you turn it off? I or? think, exactly, set a time. And again... Make it fifteen minutes before you go to sleep. Then make it half an hour. Then make it an hour. You know, just start with these micro steps and build to what is optimal. And and in the end, uh, there's so much new science about reading real books.
2: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. It's such a time suck. You know, you get go down this vortex of garbage. And, you know, and then you click on some of this weird stuff and you're like, what? You know, like Joy Behar's last words, you won't believe how she died. I'm like, Joy Behar died? And then you realize they're just, they do that with all these different people. Probably me too. And by the way, I advertise a wrinkle cream that I've never used. And all these people think I use this wrinkle cream. They shouldn't be allowed to do that, should they? Like use my face? I need a lawyer. Anybody a lawyer? <laughs> but um, but but I realize how much time you waste on your phone. I mean, it can just be suddenly you look and it's like two hours have passed. No wonder I never read books anymore or even magazine articles because I also think it makes your attention span much shorter. And, you know, it contributes to your inability to focus on something for a long period of time. So there's so many reasons that you need to really be disciplined. But the other problem, I think, which we haven't talked about, but we could do it on another podcast with an expert area on it. And I'm sure you know all about this, like Tristan Harris, who's become a crusader who he used to work at Google and he quit because he saw that the technology was being developed to Keep us focused in this attention economy to addict us with the way the algorithms work, with what we're being fed, with the bright colors, with, with the bells and whistles. And, you know, we're almost like guinea pigs in this huge science experiment. And we have to, again, kind of control our own destinies and not being manipulated and exploited by the technology that's being created ostensibly to help us.
4: And I think as leaders of technology companies because we're all involved in technology in each of our companies, it's part of our responsibility to continue to, you know, do good with the technology, to bring quality forth for individuals to be able to consume that in ways that's going to add value to their lives and you know that that helps push down the the negativity or the you know the the products or devices or apps that or you know media platforms that really don't matter um so you know let's continue to uh work on on ways to to bring forth technology that adds value
1: That's a great optimistic note on which to end because, in fact, that's the new fascinating trend around technology, technology for good, Yes, um, which is technology that helps us disconnect from technology.
2: And I think even tech companies are realizing they have a certain responsibility. You know, I've started to get notices on my phones. I don't know if you all get them, where it says, your phone use is down, you know, 40% from last week.
1: And well, uh, That is you know. the new update that Apple brought in called Screen Time. And Actually, I had the head of product marketing on the podcast uh, last month telling us how did Apple, a major technology company, decide to actually um, launch Screen Time, whose goal is to help us set boundaries to our relationship with technology. It was a very major moment for Apple, Huge, and it's really right? affecting... How people are using uh, their phones because for the first time they have a clear dashboard that shows us how much time you spend on Instagram or Candy Crush or Fortnite or whatever your addiction is. And then what I love is the parenting controls, Um, how you can help your children as well as helping yourself to navigate that world. So Which is a bold move,
2: isn't it? Because it often conflicts with the bottom line of these companies. You know, it's not sort of in their best interest to limit your phone use if you are, you know, Apple or any other company. So,
1: And for Apple, it's easier because they mostly sell hardware. I mean, they have an app store, but that's not a very significant part of their revenue. It's much harder for Facebook, for Instagram, for Twitter. But the journey has just begun. This is going to be the big debate um, of the next decade. And um, we are excited to be at the center of it. Sleep, good use of technology, and uh, good use of social media to get out the stories that matter and to increase rather than decrease empathy. Thank you, Katie, so much for being with us. Thank you, Shelly, so much for all the work you're doing to help us make, be healthier happier and more productive. We need to keep reminding people of that. That's right. Sleep well, dream big. And it's all
4: about sleeping well at night so you can dream big during the day. I like
2: that. Sleep well, dream big.
1: (laughs) And thank you everybody for being here. Sleep well, though not right now. And, (laughs) And dream big. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research for Sleep Number. So, Pete, what does the research show about the connection between sleep and school performance? And how can parents help their kids, especially teens who are addicted to technology? and love to stay up late, how can parents help them get enough sleep?
3: Great question, and I have two teenage daughters. I've learned more about uh, sleep watching them turn into wonderful women from children. It really is amazing to see the difference that sleep makes in their performance and development. Um, You know, there have been a lot of research done over the years A great study done in uh, both Israel and the U.S. shows that there's a direct correlation, controlling for everything else, between scholastic performance and sleep quantity. It's a dose response. It seems like every 10 to 15 minutes of extra sleep that our children get, results in a better grade. So from the difference between an A and a B and a B and a C and a C and a D, um, it's really a dose response. So it's, it's amazing how just a little bit of sleep change can make a huge difference in their scholastic ability.
1: And any particular help that parents can give their children, you think just giving them that information would help?
3: Well, I I think it's a great time also for them to realize the impact of, as you've talked about many, many times, the uh, impact of caffeine and screen time. Uh, You know, caffeine has a long half life, and the the amount of energy drinks that our kids consume right now is off the charts. Even uh, an energy drink at three o'clock is going to diminish the quality and the quantity of their sleep, uh, especially deep sleep early in the night. And uh, media consumption before they go to bed. Uh, I love your advice of locking away your phone (laughs) in a box in a closet, uh, away from your bed. With my girls, we used to set two alarms. One was when it was time to go to bed so they could start their routine and get rid of those things. And the other was when they woke up. But uh, media consumption just consumes the children in three different ways. One, it always displaces sleep. One more text, one more tweet, one more episode— to the blue light that it emits. It reduces the production of melatonin, delays sleep, delays quality sleep, deep sleep. And then three, the racing mind. Uh, As soon as someone puts their phone down, that doesn't mean their brain turns off. It just really makes it very difficult for our children to get to sleep. So caffeine consumption, screen consumption are are, are very, very important. And then on top of all that with our kids, when they enter adolescence, their middle-of-the-night shifts compared to what their Mm -hmm. parents are, almost up to two hours. So routines become even more important. And light exposure and avoidance is critical. An hour before you go to bed, try to get out of those bright lights, put your phones away, put them in the night mode so you don't get that blue light exposure. Then as soon as you wake up in the morning, get them in the brightest light you possibly can so that it resets their clocks and they'll sleep better because of that.
1: Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you. Thanks again to our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed adjusts to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. So it's just right for both of you. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today.
0: If you look around, you'll see the world can be pretty smart. Okay, very smart. At Capella University, we think education should be smart too. That's why we're reshaping online learning with our FlexPath format. You can set your own deadlines, take classes at your own pace, even leverage your previous experience to move faster. So when it comes to earning your bachelor's degree, you know what kind of choice to make. A smart one. Visit capella.edu to learn more. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter.
3: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.